Hello, this is Ryan Hendrickson, Dean of the Graduate School at Eastern Illinois University. Welcome to EIU Innovate. This is our first podcast of the spring semester 2018, and I am very pleased to have with us Dr. Chris Langan. Uh, Dr. Langan is an associate professor of geography. He is one of our most prolific researchers at EIU. He's just published a new book, so I'm so excited to talk to him about that. He's published nearly 20 peer-reviewed articles. He's been engaged with our Sustainable Energy Graduate Program and is also one of our uh, recipients of some of our most prestigious service awards and also research awards on campus. So I'm very, very pleased to have him with us, and I look forward to sharing uh, his interest with all of you. Chris, welcome to EIU Innovate. Thank you for inviting me. I think we're going to have fun today. Yeah. So you have some really interesting research interest um, centered around corn and pheasants and biofuel. So let's just start wherever kind of you want to. What should we know about your research in these areas? Well, a lot of it stems from the fact that I grew up on a small farm in southern Minnesota. Um, not unlike what it looks like around here in East Central Illinois, agriculturally, uh, corn and soybeans. And a lot of it also just stems from the fact that not a lot of geographers study agriculture and study the actual agricultural landscape. A lot of them study food, food production, um, things like food deserts and food insecurity and things like that. But very few actually just look at where our food comes from and how is it produced and what processes are in place that help it get from the field to the grocery store shelves. Okay. So what should we know about? So much of your publications have been about corn, mm -hmm. and I know also you've got a new book that was just published. So what do we know? What should we know about this corn and your book? Well, a lot of the research I did before the book project um, built up to the book. Where it became, you know, parts of chapters and, and things like that that, that the book uh, finally ended up as. So um, I really just try to look at how the changing landscape of agriculture has changed over the years from um, back again when my family came over from Norway, homesteaded southern Minnesota. Every farm had a quarter section of land. They grew a variety of different types of crops and how those systems worked, you know, more or less a farm was a subsistence farm. They could support themselves and they needed very little from, uh, from the store. Um, they survived and, and they, uh, they worked within the community in which they lived and that's really changed. And what I study is how those systems have changed and then how those changing systems going from a diversity of different types of crops to now here in the Corn Belt essentially, two crops, uh, how that can affect the environment, um, how that affects wildlife, which leads into kind of the pheasant research, um, and how we've really gotten away from producing food to producing these two crops that are more or less ingredients that go into food or are ingredients that go into producing other sorts of commodities. So mostly we're focused on corn. Corn. Yeah. And that is used across the United States, yep. and therefore you're probably finding that we are shipping so much of that corn. That's one of the impacts. Mm -hmm. What else about corn? Um, 
Well, corn has been around for a long time in the corn belt. I mean, that's kind of how it got its name. The real big change has been the shift of bringing in soybeans. Um, and you're right, uh, a good amount of corn, about 15 to 20% of our corn crop is simply exported. Uh, about half our soybean crop is exported. So if you kind of think of a football field size uh, area as our country's soybean crop, half of that from the goal line up to the 50 yard line is just gone overseas. Uh, another good portion of that, about the remaining 30% is used to feed animals. And the remaining 10% is used to mostly make vegetable oil and uh, other sorts of derivatives of soybeans that are going to different ingredients and in foods. Yeah. So the amount that actually ends up in the food chain, if you kind of discount what's fed to livestock, is really small. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's ingredients that go into things, not necessarily actual food. Okay. And what's the environmental impact then that you're finding with your research? Well, in the 1930s, there was about 7 million farms in the U.S. Now we're down hovering just over 2 million. So we've lost about 5 million farms over the past almost century. Um, the amount of actual land that's being farmed hasn't changed all that much. So you've got fewer people kind of caring for and being the environmental stewards of the same amount of land. So you could argue that it's a little bit trickier for someone to kind of treat that increasing land size the same as they would have treated um, the smaller acreages that they had historically. Now, through technological innovations and, and things like that and understanding soil science better and Um, you know, we've gotten better at protecting the environment as well. So it's not just we're going downhill towards bad things when you get bigger and bigger farms. Yeah. Um, There's some push and pull that's involved in in that too. So is this a major theme in this book? You know, you published this book in 2016. Yeah. And is this one of the big themes of your research findings? Yeah. um, What we did was kind of looked at the, you know, literature that's out there. There's books to no end about food. You know, Food Inc. is probably the most popular one that's come out in the last decade or so. Um, But it's all about food. No one knows where food comes from anymore, how Mm -hmm. it's produced. You know, it comes from the grocery store. So this was trying to kind of reintroduce uh, whoever reads it, at least, back to these systems that, and especially, you know, it's a geography book. So where is this food coming from? Who's producing it? How is it produced? Where does it go once it's grown? You know, what are the processes that gets it from the fields to our grocery store shelves? So that, that's really the, the, the key points of the book, chapter by chapter, when we go through the different types of foods. Okay. Yeah. The Super Bowl's coming up. Yeah. And everybody talks about guacamole. So this is a little bit of a tangent here, Chris, but what about avocados? And do you know anything about this research? And so I, my understanding is so many of them come from Mexico. Mm-hmm. And... At some point, I'm guessing they, many were grown in the United States, but maybe not. I'm not an avocado expert. <laughs> if they would, they would likely be coming from where the vast majority of all of our other vegetables come from and, and foods like that, which is the Central Valley of California. So uh, a place where we probably shouldn't be growing those sorts of foods because mm-hmm. of the really big lack of natural water sources mm-hmm. you know so when you add in things like the drought that they've had here over the last five or six years um you know these plants need water 
Yeah. They have the perfect sort of temperature growing environment year round, which is what we lack here in Illinois is that temperature aspect, especially now in the wintertime. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, we've sort of, I don't want to say pigeonholed ourselves into where we're growing these certain types of foods, but we, we sort of have because of the distribution networks that are set up now, um, the processing facilities. I mean, we could grow thousands and thousands of acres here of tomatoes in central Illinois if we wanted to. I was going to ask you about but we tomatoes. Don't. I mean, yeah. we do in our gardens and whatnot, but yeah. at a large scale, we don't just because we, had, we didn't historically. And the distribution and production systems that are in place today aren't in central Illinois. They're elsewhere. Many in Mexico, right? Isn't NAFTA, wasn't that a big uh, catalyst, yeah. especially for avocados and tomatoes and maybe other vegetables? Yeah, and even in the wintertime, the production in California, you know, decreases uh, a little bit. So when you go to the grocery store here in the wintertime, you know, you tend to see more foreign stickers on, on fruits and vegetables especially. Um, you know, a lot of our grapes come from Chile. Uh, yeah. Strawberries coming from Texas and Mexico, uh, places where you could grow them year-round, but where they tend to come more from in the wintertime when we can't grow as many of them up here. Okay. Yeah. Well. So it's a distribution thing. You know, it's understanding where it's coming from and then especially environmentally, what are the environmental limitations of these places where we're growing all these foods? Okay, so let's talk about that with regard to pheasants. Okay. I know the group Pheasants Forever yep. and many other groups are calling for more wildlife yep. habitats and less mowing of fields and and you know they want to, they want to keep these habitats so that you can get more yep. pheasants. Yep. So what's your finding with regard to pheasants? Well, pheasants are a non-native species. They're an Asian species that was brought over simply for the purposes of hunting. Um, they ended up being very well adapted to Sort of the, the transition zone uh, in the more arid regions of the upper Midwest. We used to have tons of pheasants here in Illinois um, back when it was a more diversified agricultural landscape when there were more grasslands. Um, since the 1950s and 60s, grasslands have really declined, especially here in the east central part of the state and all throughout the, the Corn Belt. So the Dakotas and Nebraska and Kansas to a lesser extent sort of became over the last three decades or so, sort of pheasant central when it comes to where people would go to hunt them. Okay, that's, I mean, that's the only purpose they really have here is, is in okay. terms of, you know, sporting. Right. Uh, hunting. So what I looked at in the Dakota specifically was as this corn belt was creeping north and west into areas that had predominantly grown small grains and wheat specifically, and had more pasture land and grassland. When policy changed in the 1980s and 90s, um, which linked then to the prices that farmers were getting for growing certain types of crops, as technology changed and allowed certain types of crops to grow better in colder climates that had shorter growing seasons, like the Dakotas have compared to here in Illinois, you started to see more and more row crop corn and soybeans pushing further west and northwest which then started to impact the amount of pheasant habitat. So grasslands were being plowed, not a lot of native grasslands per se, a lot more grasslands that were put into what was called the Conservation Reserve Program, which is a voluntary program that retired cropland that was put in whenever, I mean, since that area was first cropped, to 
cut down on the amount of production. So it was a policy issue to take these less than um, quality, I guess you could say, farmlands, put them into more of a natural cover to reduce the amount of surplus, which then brought prices up, and in the long run did help increase um, you know, the environmental quality of those areas. So when things shifted and all of a sudden it was more profitable to plant crops again, when those voluntary contracts began to expire, the CRP grassland contracts, mm -hmm. you know, as any business owner would do, you know, farmers are businessmen, they just want to make money. Yeah. So just like all of us want to do. And so then they just, you know, they took their grassland out, put it back into corn and soybeans, and it's crept further and further west to the detriment of pheasants. And um, this kind of artificial spike in the amount of pheasants that we had in the 60s to lesser extent 70s, but then again in the 80s and 90s, because of these conservation programs, you started to see those numbers fall off. Does that trend continue now? Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, it's stabilized in a few places now uh, because there was only so many acres of land that was put into those grassland programs. So um, it's hard to, you know, model those sorts of things. Yeah. Because you could have just enough grass there, but then you get a couple bad winters, and that really puts a big dent in bird population. Okay. If the habitat's there after those bad winters, the numbers can start to go up again. So in short, we're seeing some serious challenges to pheasant populations. Yeah, and, and then it comes down to, you know, what's the real, I don't want to say purpose, but, you know, why? what should this land be used for? Should it be used to preserve these birds that were introduced here a century ago that aren't native to this area? Or do you help the farmers earn an income? Yeah. So yeah, there's right. a lot of big questions. Policy, government, you know, income, socioeconomic stuff, then you bring in the environmental side. Right. It becomes very, very blurry. Okay. Well, let's talk again about your book. And I want to talk about it because talk about publishing a book. I mean, mm -hmm. It's a really different animal versus publishing articles. And how did, how was your, what was your experience like with that? And I know you've got other projects in the works. Maybe you're working on another book. Mm -hmm. Tell us about that. Well, I was lucky to have a co-author who, you know, it was probably, you know, 50-50 as far as the, the amount of work that was put into the book. Um, he's a professor at Northwestern University. He's been there probably going on 40 years now, so he's written numerous books. So he was a very good uh, guide along the way to kind of help me do this first one. Um, and I think it was, it was a good relationship. I think he enjoyed helping me do it, and I enjoyed learning how to do it from him. Um, I really just looked at it kind of like every chapter was a journal article. Yeah. And kind of set out, you know, like that. Uh, it was, to me, in my mind, much less structured than a journal article, at least how I did it. I was writing more for the general public, which is what the book was sort of intended for, and for a classroom of undergraduates, uh -huh. mostly, versus writing for a, you know, a more scientific sort of outlet like a journal would be. Have you been fortunate with some classroom adoptions yet? Yeah. Um, I use it for my food and agriculture class, 
which is now starting next fall going to be a general education course. Um, so hopefully uh, we get some good response to that. And uh, you know, it's we, we wrote the book with that in mind to adopting it for a classroom. So 14, 15 chapters, a chapter a week, you know, for yeah, a semester. That's nice. and, um, kind of had that in mind. So not quite writing. a text, not a textbook, but, cer- a textbook, but yeah. certainly something that could be easily adapted for use in an undergraduate classroom. Yeah, exactly. I mean, very dense in information, not okay. a lot of fluff in it. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Chris, you have another publication that I really want to talk about. It's titled, A Picture is Worth 972 Words, The Old Red Barn. Tell us about this red barn. Well, the Red Barn is my farm's, the farm I grew up on, my family's barn. Um, It was built in the early 1900s, destroyed by a tornado in the 1930s, and then rebuilt. So the barn that I grew up with wasn't the original, but it was close. Um, In southern Minnesota, you know, barns are structures on farms that serve a purpose. People just didn't build red barns so people could look at them today and go, oh, look at that nice historic barn. Look at that beautiful red barn. Barns have different shapes, different sizes, different configurations, depending on where you're at in the United States. So um, not a lot of barns here in East Central Illinois, especially north of Charleston, because most of the landscape, most of the farms on that landscape didn't have a lot of livestock, like the rest of maybe Central Iowa, Southwestern Minnesota, Ohio, Indiana did, just because of how it was settled and, and, and farmed. So this barn was not used for anything most of my lifetime. The people who had a few head of cattle in our pasture would store some hay up there. But by the time I came around in the late 1970s, everything was corn and soybeans. Didn't have livestock on the farm anymore. No need for a barn without livestock. So it was basically a place for me to play growing up. Oh, you probably have great memories of this place. No, it was great. and then a few years ago, it, when grandchildren started roaming around my parents' farm, uh, they saw it as kind of a, a hazard. Okay. Didn't want anyone to get hurt. They also wanted to give the local fire department uh, a few hours worth of practice in a controlled burn. Ah. So that's how a lot of these structures are taken care of today. They're, they're simply burned down and... Um, there's no barn there anymore. Ah. So I wrote this essay mostly as kind of an explanation of the history, the lifespan of, of these sorts of structures on farms and why they were built in the first place, what purposes they served, and why they don't serve that same purpose anymore. Right. Far more broader implications than uh, just for what the barn was there. I mean, the, the evolution of the purpose of the barn clearly has changed radically over time. Right, and, and the fact that it hasn't been a working farm, my family still owns the, the 160 acres that was homesteaded. Um, but the farm site itself, my dad lived there, I lived there, his dad, the, his dad before, you know, so all the way back to when my Norwegian ancestors came over, um, there's been a barn there. but. Since the 1970s or so, that barn wasn't needed anymore. So my dad wasn't a farmer. I wasn't a farmer, obviously. Um, So it also talks a little bit about the changing rural landscape. Who lives on the rural landscape? It's not all farmers. So it it talks quite a bit about that, too. Very interesting. All right. I always like to ask 
any of our guests on EIU Innovate about their favorite publication. Do you have one that stands out where you thought, wow, this is a really great finding, or you were happy with the placement of the article? What stands out over the course of your many publications? Um, there's, there's two. The one, that I, one I have that I uh, sole authored was about, uh, was about a cautionary tale of, of looking at agricultural data and how people use it and might misuse it because, you know, data, we can kind of make it say what we want it to say if we kind of massage it the right way. Um, so it, one was that one because um, a lot of people who read it really didn't know and understand all of the different ways in which agricultural data are collected, what some of the shortcomings of them that there are, uh, especially with satellite-based data products. Um, but the one that I'm probably most proud of right now, and it just came out, was one that I co-authored with three of my former graduate school classmates from South Dakota State on the changing agricultural landscape of North and South Dakota. And, okay. And this shift from diversity in agriculture to a movement towards corn and soybeans and why that's happening. So we kind of got into more of the the policy, the socioeconomic issues, the farmer-to-farmer -farmer issues. Why does one farmer adopt a certain way of doing things and another one doesn't? So that was a fun one just because it was with a bunch of people that I've been with for a long, long time. Yeah, but it was fun writing yeah. with colleagues yeah. and good friends. Yep. And yeah, yeah, your research has a lot of political implications. I'm a political scientist, yeah. as you know, so I, when I hear you talk about all those different impacts, I'm also thinking there's such, you know, so many policy issues connected, so many sociological issues right. in play. So your your research is very interdisciplinary, which is also perhaps why you've been involved with the Sustainable Energy mm -hmm. Graduate Program. So tell us a little bit about your engagement with that graduate program. Well, probably f ooh, six, seven years ago, Dr. Peter Liu approached me about being a part of it. Um, on EIU's campus, at least, there, there are probably a few other people, but I'm probably one of the few that has the perspective about the agricultural landscape um, that Peter liked in terms of trying to understand how we could maybe use agricultural lands to produce biofuel-related crops. Uh, corn ethanol is the big one, but here on campus with the Renewable Energy Center, you know, we were looking at some other alternatives to the wood chips that they initially started out with. Mm -hmm. So that's how I became involved in that initially, just sort of trying to maybe figure out what what could be done um, in that regard, okay. bringing the fuel in. Yeah. Let's ask one more question sure. about your research. So I always also like to ask people, where do they write? When do they write? Is there a time of day that's much better for you? Or maybe it's the weekend. I mean, how do you get, how would you publish so much stuff? It's fear and adrenaline, <laughs> mostly. No. Um, I need big chunks of time. I'm not the type, I wish I could say that I was, where if I had 30 minutes, I could just pull out the paper I'm working on and add another couple of paragraphs to it. And, you know, um, but I do better with big chunks of time. Um, so right now, with the book, the book kind of scared me. So I was writing at night quite a bit. Put the kids to bed, you know, nine o'clock to midnight. I'd go oh. downstairs and write. Okay. Um, I do a lot of my writing at, at home in, in the basement, um, my little home office. Yeah. Um, just because that's how my brain likes to work. I don't like distractions. I need big chunks of time to do it. 
So now on sabbatical, working on another book project now, I've kind of divided my day out. I've had to schedule myself, you know, throughout the day because I really have no commitments. Yes. Other than getting the kids to daycare or school (laughs) and picking them up at the end of the day. Yeah. So I've, I've... basically have on my wall a written out schedule where I have these three two hour chunks of time throughout the day where in between the first couple is lunch and then I go try to go for a walk mid-afternoon so I'll work on things for maybe five six hours hopefully a day research and writing not just all writing yeah I found I had one sabbatical many years ago and found the same thing that especially when starting the sabbatical it was a little so different because you have a lot of open space and if you don't really kind of structure the day you can lose some of it but um, they can be so productive and come back with um, well one you can produce a tremendous amount Mm -hmm. and the creative juices really get going in a way that just cannot happen when you're engaged with your teaching and you know it's just so nice to have that break to really refresh and get you going the normal way I write during a regular semester is typically uh, I'm a very visual person so I have a couple conferences I go to every year and I put together my PowerPoint that I'm going to give it my my paper at the conference I'll put that together first if I know I have a topic in mind I also read from a script at these conferences which is not as formalized as a journal article but it's just sort of me talking but written down on paper okay when the conference is over I've got a paper that's essentially 80 to 90% done. I just have to go in, you know, make it sound like a journal article, add the references in, yeah, polish it. Yeah, those conference presentations also are good for your producers yeah. and, and making yeah. sure you get, yeah. the, get the paper ready to go. Yep. So that's usually how I do it. So a couple a year, that kind of is a nice steady pace. Yeah, yeah. What's your next book on? Um, it's actually with the same guy I wrote the other book with, John Hudson from Northwestern. Um, it's a Geography of Illinois textbook. So there hasn't been one of those written in probably 30 years or so. Uh, the state's changed quite a bit over the last 30 years. Um, with the, was it the bicentennial of mm-hmm. Illinois this year? Um, with that in mind, we pitched it to University of Illinois Press, uh, so we're getting them some chapters here now. Uh, but it's a regional and topical textbook on Illinois geography. So you're going with a university press, yep. so a very scholarly book, but yep. at the same time, I would imagine, you know, could high school students even perhaps oh, yeah. adopt this book? Yeah. High or school, high school teachers? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, and the general public, too, you know. not It's not, you know, a coffee table book by any means, but um, something that will be written for a wide variety of applications. You know, maybe a certain class could uh, adopt a chapter of it. You know, if they're interested in the politics of Illinois or the agricultural landscape of Illinois, physical landscape, things like that. Okay. Well, we're getting toward the end of the podcast, but I want to ask you one final question. You know, you've published so much here. You've received service awards, and you certainly would would have had an opportunity to go to other places, but you've stayed here at EIU, and you have found this to be a productive place. So what is it about EIU that keeps you here, that you love about EIU, and that you'd like to share with our audience? What I really love about EIU and what I get to do here is the flexibility that's 
available. I've been very fortunate. I was hired, the job description when I was hired here was written, it seemed like it was written for me. You know, <laughs> okay. Agriculture, Perfect. natural resources, you know, on and on and on. So not being that many people with those interests in geography, um, and it's probably helped me with my research number of papers and things like that is that there's very few people who look at what I look at. So the flexibility that's involved, the, the other big thing is being able to blend what I do research-wise and more or less bring that right into the classroom. So my food and ag class, every chapter of that book has been some research that I've worked on partially or entirely. So that's a whole class that's built on my research. My land change science class is the same way. Um, so it's really that, just being able to have that flexibility and be able to, to blend together that research and teaching. I found the same that, thing with, yeah. with when I was teaching. The, Without the pressure, you know, of yeah. bringing in these huge grants. And, exactly. You know, I don't think I'd do well at a, at a big land-grant university, so to speak. I, I like being able to, I guess, have the flexibility that EIU affords in that regard. I think it's so much fun to share your research findings with your students, yeah. and I think the students respond yeah. so favorably with that, and it makes your teaching all that more exciting and engaging, and you're clearly doing that. So, Chris, I want to thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you. Good luck with your sabbatical and uh, your next book project. All right. Keep at it, man. Thank you. Thank you.